Well, hey, Calvary. If I've never met you before, my name is Brody. I'm on staff here at Calvary. I get to work with the students, and I get to work in outreach a little bit and do a, a, a few different things here. For the past several months, we've been in this series in James called the Market Up series, and we've left no stone unturned in this series. We've gone through each verse from the very first chapter until now, the last few verses in James, and we've seen the full range of James. We've seen uh, happy James in the first chapter of James, right? Persevering through trials and joy in the midst of trials. We've seen more recently angry James. We've seen James and the power of the tongue, how no one can tame the tongue. We've seen the misuse of riches. We've seen the connection between faith and works, and that faith without works is dead. And James concludes his book in James 5, 13 through 20 today. My task is to help wrap up this series, but almost equally as important. My role is to help you appreciate Zach and his preaching more than you have ever appreciated him before. And so if you'll open your Bibles or if you'll open your journals, if you have those, we're going to be in James 5, 13 through 20. We'll begin there, but first, let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for this wonderful book of James. We thank you for its profound meaning and its instruction for us. God, we pray that you'd help us to understand it today. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have to say to us. I pray that you'd speak clearly through me and call to mind all that we've seen these past few months. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think I must have the coolest job in the world here at Calvary. I get to work with students each and every week, and I get to teach them about Jesus and about the word of God and about faith. But the coolest part about working with students is none of that. It's obviously the games. <laughs> and for a number of years before I was here at Calvary, I worked at a summer camp where I diligently perfected this craft of beating students at games each and every day. But occasionally this work would be interrupted. When a student would run up to me and they'd say, Brody, in this, in this panic and in confusion, I don't know what's going on. I, I think you need to call my parents. I think I need to go home. I, I can't, I don't know what's going on. I'm in pain, something is wrong. I think I need to go to the hospital. Call my parents, I, I need to go home. And so in a, in a frantic run, I run to the nurse's office to find out which of their limbs needs to be severed. And I was often greeted by the nurse with a similar question each time. Have they had anything to drink today? Have they had any water? It seems that we oftentimes skip out on the most essential things for us. And in the busyness and the craziness of running around and the hecticness of life and so many important things, we forget about some of the most essential things. All through this book, James has talked to the church, to the early church, about how to live a life 
of faith. How are we to live together and with God? And in today's passage, James concludes by addressing some different circumstances. He's going to address four different kinds of people in the passage today. He's going to address those who are suffering, those who are having a difficult time and they're going through the difficult parts of life. He's going to address those who are cheerful, those who are doing really well and they're in a good season of life. He's going to address those who are sick, those who are ailing and ill. And lastly, he's going to address those who are wandering from God and who feel distant. And he's going to give a unique prescription for all four of these circumstances. No matter where you are in life, in all situations, you should pray. In our urgency, James is going to cause us to stop and ask, have you prayed today? Have you had your water today? And so let's look together at verse 13. It begins this way. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James begins this section with the question, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone hurting? Is anyone in troubling circumstances? Is anyone among us here today suffering? Is anyone going through the difficulties of life? I think it can be really easy to marginalize our suffering. We say things like, oh, it could, it could always be worse. Look on the bright side. Things could be so much worse. It makes me think of our ministry with Afghan refugees that we've been doing over the past number of months. A number of people have been loving these families who have moved here and coming alongside them and helping them find housing and jobs. And in many of these situations, these families have lost everything. They had to leave everything behind in Afghanistan to move to a new culture. In some cases, they came with one suitcase each. How can my suffering compare to that? Surely, it can't be as bad. Surely, it can't compare to what they're going through. But I think James has in mind here a bigger idea of suffering than we oftentimes think about. I think it's more than just a physical suffering. But I think it's a suffering that can include emotional and spiritual well-being as well. It can be the loss of a loved one. It could be the inability to buy a home or a car in a really difficult market. It could be loneliness, wanting companionship, feeling distance from God, feeling like he just isn't there. Or it could be the news of yet another tragedy at a school. Is anyone among us suffering today? I think the answer is certainly yes. Yes, there are some among us who are suffering. And how should we respond when we face difficulty and suffering? His answer is this, let that person pray. May they seek after God. May they give their attention to God. This echoes James in chapter one, if going all the way back in chapter one, he said, consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. 
And notice he doesn't say if, he said when you meet trials of various kinds. And then just a couple of verses later, his answer to that is this. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. We've seen this prescription for suffering from James before. When you face trials, when you're in times of suffering and of difficulty, when we need the wisdom of God to make it through, James' answer is this, pray. But why do we pray? When we're suffering, when we're going through difficulty, why do we pray? We pray because God is in control. Because God is able to remove the things that are causing suffering in our lives but also because God is able to give us the perseverance to endure through suffering and difficult times. In suffering, we should pray. But also, if anyone is cheerful, let them sing praise. We're familiar with singing praise here in church, right? The worship band did such a tremendous job just leading us through these songs, and we lift up our voices together on Sunday mornings. And for me, it's one of the most joyful parts of my week to come and sing praises with my church, with people I love. We're familiar with this on Sunday mornings. But worship and singing praise shouldn't just happen on Sunday mornings, right? It shouldn't just happen when we have people who are gifted musicians and can sing much louder than we can with good voices. Praise is our grateful expression for how good God is. I'm going to say that again. Praise is our grateful expression because of how good God is. When we are cheerful, we pray. Singing praise is a form of prayer. We sing praise because God has given us everything for which we are cheerful and thankful. Everything. In fact, James said this again in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect thing is from God. And so, for that reason, we sing praise. We give him thanks. Okay, cool. So if we're suffering, we should pray. And if we're doing well, if we're cheerful, we should sing praise. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Cool. But I want to make one other point on this before we move on from this verse. Because James is saying that when we suffer, we should pray. And that when we're cheerful, we should sing praise. But he's not saying we should do those things exclusively. Notice he never makes this full distinction there. He doesn't sing, say, if you're suffering, you should pray, but if you're cheerful, man, you better be singing praise. If you're not suffering, you better be the loudest person on Sunday morning singing. He never makes that distinction. He never separates them. Because these two aren't separate things. They're not fully distinct. When life is good, we should still seek the wisdom of God. And we should still give praise to God when things are hard. I know today there are some among us who are suffering. I know there are some, some among us who are cheerful. 
and maybe even some among us who are sick or ill. And the church is a place for all of us to come together. It's a place for deep and agonizing prayer together. It's a place for joyful laughter and exuberant praise. This is a place for all of us. The beauty of prayer of giving our attention to God is that he meets us no matter where we are, whether we're rejoicing or suffering. And so if you are suffering, he is here with you today. Pray. Come to him. And if you are cheerful, praise God. He is here with you as well. We are meant to suffer and to sing praise, but not just individually. We shouldn't just do this alone. We should also do this within a community, within, within a group. And not just any community, a community of faith, a community of believers who can come alongside us. And so verses 14 through 16 go on to talk about this. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you get all that? No questions from that whatsoever, right? We can just skip past these couple of verses, I think. No, there's, there's a lot happening, a lot packed into these couple of verses, right? We see a command to pray to elders. What's the deal with that? Why elders? We see oil, anointing with oil for healing. What's the deal with that? We see confession. We see a lot of things packed into here. So let's get into the weeds a little bit. Let's get down into the nitty gritty here. Verse 14, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Here, James addresses those who are sick. And so he's, he's addressed those who are cheerful, those who are suffering. Now he moves on to those who are sick. And he's going to say, in sickness, the prescription still applies. You should pray. But not just individually. You shouldn't just do this on your own, although you should do that as well. You should do this in a community. You should do this with other people. You have resources at your disposal. If you are ill, if you are sick, call for help. And he's going to specifically say, call for the leaders of your church. Call for the pastors and those who care for you. Clearly, this must mean that the elders have some kind of special healing abilities that the rest of us don't have, right? We should call them because they are extra spiritual and they can come and pray for us and that'll be the most effective prayer. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, call for the elders, call for the pastors of your church, call for those who, are, who their role is to care for you. Let them do what they're called to do, to care for you. Pastors and our elders love to pray for you, but they don't have some special ability. Their role is to shepherd and to care for the people of the church. And the only way they can do this is if they know what your needs are, right? 
Pastors can only pray for you if they know what's going on in your life. They can pray generally for you, but they're not going to be praying for a specific healing for you if they don't know that you're sick. Right? And so, if you are sick, don't suffer alone. Do you know that here at Calvary, our elders pray for you? Do you know that here at Calvary, our elders get together once a month and they go over prayer requests and they pray for the people in our church and for the needs that they know of? Do you know that each week, our staff prays for you? That each time you fill out a prayer request, we go over these each week and we pray for you. Our desire is that our church will know more and more of Jesus and that we will be compassionate for one another. That we will be a praying community. Our elders and our staff love to pray for you. But we can only pray the things we know about. And notice, he puts the responsibility on the person who is sick here. He says, if anyone is sick, call the elders. Let that person reach out to the elders. Don't suffer alone. And then it goes on to talk about oil. It says, excuse me, um, Verse, lost my place. End of 14. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the, the name of the Lord. What is the deal with the oil here? What's going on here in verse 14? Why do we anoint with oil? Or should we anoint with oil? Well, it seems that in this context, oil probably held some, some medical purposes, that it was one of the best remedies at that time, that if somebody had an ailment, if they had a burn or a cut, that they would apply oil to that, and it was good for the skin. It would help the skin to recover quickly. And so it held some medical purposes, but also it held some symbolic meaning at this time. It held a lot of symbolic meaning specifically in the Old Testament. When someone became a priest or a king, they were to be anointed with oil, which symbolized that they had been set apart for the work of God. And not only that they'd been set apart for the work of God, that the Holy Spirit had come upon this person. We see this in 1 Samuel 16. If you want to go back and read this another time, it's a really cool story where David is anointed the king over Israel. I'm going to read one verse. It says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. The spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Oil was viewed as a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit with people. And so should we use oil when we pray for people? When we pray for the healing of somebody who's sick, should we, should we put oil on them when we pray for them? The answer is, sure. We can do that. That's great. In fact, that's, that's a fine thing to do. But there's nothing special about the oil today. 
It doesn't hold the same medical purpose, right? We have doctors and we have medicines that are much more advanced and better than the oil at this time, right? We have better resources at our disposal. But I do think the oil can symbolically point us to Jesus Christ. When somebody is ill or is sick and we're praying for them, it can teach us that the Holy Spirit is with that person and that their body belongs to God. And so when we pray for oil, it can hold this symbolic meaning, right? But there's nothing special about the oil itself. We can do this, but the power is not in the oil. The power is in the prayer and the Holy Spirit working through people and through his word. And so I think we can take two implications from this. Two implications from this verse about oil. It says that uh, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If anyone is sick, they are to seek the help of the church, I think is the first implication. And that the church should respond with the best resources at their disposal. If you have resources to offer somebody, you are obligated to offer those to somebody. You should care for people in the best way that you have available to you. And secondly, I think this should point us that when we pray for somebody, that their body belongs to God. And so it's okay to use oil. But we also see in this passage, in these couple of verses, that when a Christian who is sick is seeking healing, they should examine his or her heart and look for sins and confess sins. Verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here, James tells believers to confess their sins to one another. And I think this can be a strange concept to us in this culture, in this culture that's very individualized, that's very private. You can talk to me about anything except for how I raise my kids and what I do with my money and when I take my vacation time and what car I drive, what job I take, right? We're very private. We're very individual. And so I think this is a a strange concept to us today. But here James is saying that the Christian life should be marked by a mutual sharing of sin. The Christian life should be marked by a mutual sharing of sin. Do you share your sins with someone? Is there somebody who you share with and encourages you? So is James saying here, that if you're sick, that this is a result of sin? Is that what's going on here in this passage? Is it saying that if you have have sinned, you are now ill and you need to go and confess, and when you confess, you will then be healed? No, that's not what James is saying. But also, sometimes, yes. Also, Sometimes, yes. I think most healthcare professionals, professionals will tell you that there's often a deep connection between spiritual, emotional issues 
and the physical well-being of our bodies. Issues of shame, issues of anger, and of guilt, and of different kinds of sin can all undermine a person's physical well-being. And so I think it's appropriate for us to examine ourselves. But I want to be careful here, because what I don't want is for us to walk out of here, and I don't want us to walk out and think, that person that I know who's sick is because of sin. And if they would just repent of their sins, then they would be healed. Or because I'm sick, because I'm ill, clearly it must mean that I'm in some kind of sin. But I do think it is appropriate for us to ask the question, is there something in my life causing physical stress to my body? Is there something that has been hidden from others that needs to be brought into the light? Because when things are hidden, it is not good for us. When sin is brought into the light, it brings freedom. And when it brings freedom, it brings healing. But the good news is you don't have to figure this out on your own. You don't have to walk out here and examine your heart on your own and try to figure out, okay, is there some kind of sin? Because the context of this passage is about confession. It's about sharing with other people. It's about sharing with your peers. And just like our elders and our pastors cannot pray for specific needs unless they know them, neither can your peers. And so is there someone in your life who knows your sin? Is there someone who challenges you to repent when you need to repent? Who calls out sin when they see it in your life? Is there someone who speaks the truth of the gospel to you when you're struggling to believe it? James says that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another because mutual confession leads to mutual prayer. When we know one another's sins, we pray for them. And James goes on to hit further on this in verses 19 through 20. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here James is addressing those who have gone away from the church, those who have wandered from God and feel distance, and they've entered into a life of sin. We all know people like this, people who used to sit alongside us, people who worshiped alongside us, who prayed for us, who shared meals with us, who we served with. We all know people who have wandered from the truth of God and his people. They've embraced a life of sin, and that life of sin has brought destruction to them. What are we to do when we see a fellow believer wandering from the truth of God? According to James, we should pray for them. We should pray for them. We should call them back. And we should share sin before we get to this point of wandering from God. You see, he said in the first verse, 
If we're cheerful, we should sing praise to God. We don't have a problem doing this in community. When we're cheerful, we are so eager to be with God's people and to share the exciting things that are going on in life with those around us. When we're cheerful, we don't just praise God alone. And so when we're suffering, when we're ill, when we feel like wandering, why would we do it alone? Don't suffer alone. Whether we're cheerful or suffering or in sickness, we should pray not only as individuals, but we should pray with the community of faith. And James is going to go on to cite Elijah as an example of someone who prayed, someone who we should follow their example of prayer. It goes on to say in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then it says in verses 17 through 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might rain, might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The background of this story is in 1 Kings. It's a really fascinating story, but this king, this wicked king Ahab, and his queen Jezebel have led the people of God away from the worship of God. The nation of Israel, the people who were intended to be God's people, they've been led astray to the worship of false gods and they've turned away from God. And so God says, in order to get them to repent, to turn from these evil ways, I'm gonna take away all of the water. And when no water comes, no food comes. And they will learn that it is me who provides everything they need for life. Every good and perfect gift comes from me. And so Elijah goes and he prays that the rain would stop in 1 Kings 17. He prays that the rain would stop and the rain ceases. And then for three and a half years, there was no rain. And then at three and a half years, when the time had come, Elijah prays again and the rain returns. And it says, the earth again bore its fruit. And so it's citing Elijah as a man whose prayer was powerful. It stopped the rain. This is a prayer worth emulating, worth copying. And yet it begins in a really interesting way here. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man like us. He wasn't perfect. And if you go back and read 1 Kings in this story about Elijah, you can take great comfort because Elijah was a man like us. Elijah got depressed. Elijah at times was very sad. He was scared. He at times was disobedient and sinned against God. And yet, he prayed with faith. Elijah is the example of a righteous person from verse 16. But he's also a normal person. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And so how do I become the righteous person? How do I find out who the most righteous people are in this church so I can ask them to be the ones to pray for me? How do I discern who a righteous person is? 
Well, the bad news is that none of us are righteous. On our own, we have no righteousness. And yet 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those who know Jesus and have believed upon Jesus have become the righteousness of God. But with that righteousness comes a righteous responsibility. This is what James has been talking about through this whole book. All these themes we've, we've seen about the power of the tongue and about faith and works, it's all been about how do you live a life of faith? How do we live You who have received the righteousness of Jesus, how do you live a life of righteousness? Well, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And so the final words of James to the believers is this. Pray. In the bad times, pray. In the good times, pray. Individually, pray. When you are sick, pray. In your community of faith, pray. In all situations, don't skip the most essential thing. Go to God. Your prayers are powerful because of the righteousness of Jesus. And so, pray. Would you pray with me? God, you are holy and gracious. We thank you that even so, you hear us. You hear us when we pray. You're not a distant God. You're not aloof, but you care for your children. You hear us. And so forgive us when we wander from you. Forgive us when we neglect to give you the worship and the praise that you deserve. Help us to be a church community that lives our faith as we walk with you this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.